Hi everyone, Pamela Log here, your host of the Energy Transitions podcast. If you enjoy listening to our bi-weekly podcast, make sure to hit the subscribe button and take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. This will help us spread the message and connect with our community. Thanks again for listening to the Energy Transitions podcast from Inlet and Friends. The built environment poses quite a conundrum for the energy transition. It is one of the main sources of carbon emissions, although it also provides one of the most opportune spaces for clean tech project development. Behind the meter, energy efficiency and demand response projects in particular show a lot of promise within this space. It is in this context that the Sustainable Energy Finance Association, or CIFA, launched earlier this year with a vision of a zero net carbon built environment where buildings, communities, towns and cities are all powered by sustainable energy. But will it be possible to achieve this vision? What is holding back project developers and how can we overcome the lack of funding stalling progress? My colleague Yusuf Latif spoke to Jessica Strombach, CEO of Jewel Assets and CIFA co-founder, to get answers to these questions. I'm Pamela Log and this is the Energy Transitions Podcast. Jessica, the first question I'd like to ask you is about your experience of the clean energy landscape. There are so many projects coming online. What have been some of the most exciting for you that you've seen coming onto the map? The things that that excite me the most are using the investments that are being made, um, particularly in renewable generation, to create new business models. So one of the few you know, 45 degree strong, strong growth charts in Europe is in the renewable generation space. There's very few other areas that are attracting that level of investment. And so the business models, the spin-off business models that you can do with that when it comes to flexibility, when it comes to storage, when it comes to enabling electric vehicles, microgrids, that to me, I find to be the innovative, exciting space. So you're a founding member of CIFA, the Sustainable Energy Finance Association. It launched quite recently. And it's a vision of this thriving zero net carbon built environment where buildings, communities, towns, cities, they're all powered by sustainable energy. Quite an ambitious vision. In broad terms, what does that look like getting there? I think the first step is really changing the dialogue around climate mitigation and climate action from cutting back, being careful, taking things away toward, look, this is an incredible opportunity. It's a massive creative space. Uh, it's, It's so many things that people actually want. I mean, in Europe, we had tens of thousands of people that died last year from heat 
right? This is about improving that building stock so that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, improving air conditioning so that you are not just burning up the grid or oil. It's about these innovations that we actually all want, right? So for me, when I look at that vision, it's a vision of opportunity, of growth, of um, better health, of the ability of kids to concentrate on their homework because they can breathe, because they're in a in a good space. You know, that's that's to me the vision. And where we come from in that is it's a very, very practical space. So CIFA was born out of about five years of European Commission projects where we were tasked with creating IT platforms that allowed for innovative financing. And the journey to to creating those platforms is actually quite personal, I think also answers your question. I was a a lobbyist in Brussels for um, demand response, was actually a co-founder of SmartN and was doing that work. And out of that, I was hired to gather this investment portfolio for a small energy efficiency fund that was being developed in New York. Okay, because I knew the market really well and they they knew that I would be able to bring together innovative companies that maybe they wanted to finance some of their projects. One of the companies was a small Italian company north of Italy and they had only been able to use their own company debt to finance their projects. And when this CEO found out that there would be money available for projects from a third party resource, he went out and he tripled the size of his sales team. Because all of a sudden he had the vision of being able to to really grow. And to me, that was just like this, this pivotal moment that I realized that, wait a second, A, this is totally about growth and B, People are literally holding themselves back for a lack of opportunity. And so we created these platforms to enable companies like his to access financing, to really become part of this market, to become part of this vision. And that is what CIFA is all about. It's about making something that is a vision and an ideal, doing the hard work in the intermediate steps to actually get there through enabling market players to succeed. Very interesting. You mentioned there that there's this idea of people holding them back. And I can yeah. I can understand that the energy industry is there's so much going on. It's a bit intimidating. What do you think is really holding people back? What's stopping project developers from playing the role that they can in this growing sector? Of course, there isn't a single thing. And we Uh, The Sustainable Energy Finance Association really focuses a lot on energy efficiency and behind the meter generation. So we really focus on that. And in that particular sector, the big barriers are our lack of uptake, right? So a lack of public push for the projects. Lobby work and, and government engagement is actually really important there because standards, building standards, required standards would really help that. Uh, It would help push the market forward. So that's one big barrier. But another big barrier is that there is a huge gap between project developers, what they focus on and what the finance industry needs. And in the case of that small company that's 
you know, was my source of inspiration. Um, they were limited by how much debt their company could take. And so he literally was making sure he did not sell more than he could finance. And when he realized he would have greater access to the market, to money, he expanded what he was able to do. So we aren't providing 90% of the payers out there, which are the small to medium-sized companies. We aren't providing them with clear, viable pathways to growth. And that is something that really needs to be addressed and that we're we're really focused on. So a lot of other associations or groups, they'll be trying to get governments to spend more. We're not necessarily trying to get governments to spend more. We're trying to get governments to enable small players and banks and financial funds to enable the small players and medium-sized players to really be able to grow. Because that we need that. We need small business. We need job development. We need growth to really make this real. Otherwise, it's going to stay this irritating policy forever. I mean, you mentioned there this idea of awareness building. Do you think that that is still a huge issue? No, I mean, there's a good amount of awareness. It's just that really doing things is always complicated and expensive. So even though we all know that, you know, productivity goes up in a building that's well insulated where people aren't cold and they can breathe clean air and uh, you're going to spend less with insulation, putting in insulation is a real decision. And there are real market barriers like you might not own the building and your building owner does not have the motivation to to insulate because they earn the same amount anyway. You know, so so it's not just a pure awareness, it's it's capabilities and it's divided loyalties, if you will, like what's the decision making party may not have the motivation that they need to change something. And and that's where regulation and also just market pressure can can help and is helping. I want to ask about some of the pitfalls that someone has decided to start their own project. They've gathered the fundings. They are now Mm -hmm. on this journey. What are the pitfalls that they should be on the lookout for? Well, you said and gathered the financing. And and so if somebody really done that, they'd already started off on a really good foot. Our experience is that by necessity, people need to focus on acquiring the client Uh, getting the technology, hiring the staff, you know, doing all the or hiring the project developer, whatever the practical steps are to creating that project before they ever figure out the financing. And and so I'd say one of the things that is a pitfall is you you need to bring your financing partners in earlier. And it's also a very good idea if you're a project developer to actually create financing partners. So do the work to find those entities and that's one area that that tifa can help find those entities who will back you for the long haul because this really is a journey and and so some of the pitfalls that we've seen we processed about well now it's close to 200 million worth of projects one of the main things that we saw over and over again is that people would do a lot of project development without checking with a financial fund that their contracting structure or their technology or whatever it was, was going to meet that fund's criteria. And then they would get in big trouble afterwards. And 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 the whole thing can fall apart. We saw great projects just completely, completely fall apart over stuff like that. 
So think about it much earlier and get help. You may have actually answered this in part then for small scale project developers. What should their priorities be in the beginning? I think small scale project developers actually do a really good job at their core business, which is contacting the clients, creating a pipeline, being responsible people who do good work, who come in and, and, and you know, fulfill the terms of the project where they tend to have issues, not because it's their fault, but because it's very difficult, is in creating a path for growth. So what happens a lot in Europe is that you will have these firms, they'll manage to support three to five people, and it's like there's just this glass, ironclad ceiling above their heads, like they're just kept in that box. And to break out of that box, that cage, if you will, you you need to think like a corporation. You need like long-term planning and you need to make use of the resources that there are now in Europe. Get the advice. You know, you can always, I'm advertising CIFA because we provide that kind of advice to our membership, but we're not the only ones. There are there are government organizations, et cetera, that will also help. Like that kind of thing. If you want to grow beyond this very, very micro company type deal, you have to do that. You have to do that work. You talk about looking ahead for these developers. How should the priorities be set between focusing on the now and focusing on the future? Because there is also this danger, to, I've heard from some people, about getting tunnel visioned in either if you're focusing on one too much. And I just want to clarify where the group of people I'm talking about are predominantly energy efficiency project developers who also do some forms of behind the meter generation. So obviously there's huge groups of companies that are, don't follow it, fall into this category, but the group that I'm talking about is this one. So I think you just summarized the tension, right? Because the answer is both. And unless you're happy providing for you and is a totally viable, uh, self-respecting thing to do. But if you want to grow beyond that, you have to set your projects up in a manner that allows you to access financing, to create those financing partners, to create pipeline of projects, um, to build your sales force, et cetera. And if you don't do that, you're always just going to do one project at a time bit of a shift in focus here where do energy communities come into the equation they're growing in size and momentum how can they partake in the energy industry in this way and then how can project developers bring them to life i personally find energy communities very exciting i think it's the democratization of energy i think it empowers communities brings them together um and in a world that's getting more and more fractured and more and more split, actually, to me, this is like an invisible force of sort of holding holding communities together. So I, I think they're just great. Um, the, the types of projects that they can do is really anything, right? Like, it depends on the size, it depends on the commitment of the group, but we see energy communities doing everything from creating different versions of microgrids. They're not usually full, fully blown microgrids, but, you know, uh, sharing energy. It depends a lot on the on the um, regulation in the country, but often owning forms of generation that give a long-term return to the, to the community. 
um, keeping their prices down, making sure that people's voices are heard from the ground up. And I'll just say one thing that I really appreciate about it is that more and more in the world right now, you have a very small group of people that own the assets, they own the infrastructure, they own everything we use, and they earn from all of it. They earn from the roads, they earn from the the lighting, and they they own that. And an energy community, because it brings ownership to the grassroots, empowers the grassroots in a way that you can't do otherwise, because you have a say over your own infrastructure. And the the part of finance and project developers, the tension with finance is often that the energy community very rightly wants to maintain ownership. Thank you very much. Which means they don't want to give it the asset away to the financial fund. And so the the challenge there is for them to pay for the technology they want to buy, right? But maintain control of it. And so one of the interesting projects that we're working on, uh, and we're not leading this, the association for, for these communities is leading it in Brussels, is looking to create structures where the community can maintain ownership, can maintain control, but access the, the financing that they deserve. You know what I mean? And that's where that's where the tension comes in there. And then I think the project developers aren't are in a great space because they have this group of people who are knowledgeable, who want to do something. Um, but unless the money is there, they're, they're not going to be able to move forward either. The model for energy communi- communities, I often hear, tend to be unfortunately associated with risk and investors don't really attribute them with profit. What yep. would you say to investors who might be considering placing their stakes in, in this type of model? There's this idea of energy communities as a much longer term investment that might look good for them. Investors are dealing, are living in, in a very real world, right? That they have an investment fund or bank will have made promises to investors or made promises to to their board or they'll have regulation that that individual sitting across the desk has absolutely no say over, right? Like they they have to follow the rules of their game. So I, I think the thing is more to see the opportunity that once you have thousands and tens of thousands of energy communities, which you do now in Europe, one of the, the responsibilities and something that that I hope we can help with is bringing multiple communities together, creating special purpose vehicles where the projects are put in, uh, you're, you're aggregating projects. It's the same thing like you have to do with small businesses. You have to aggregate their projects. They have to be financed as if they're all one thing and then um, you know have a long-term form of investment. Uh, many times an energy community wants a certain level of ownership, but they don't necessarily need every aspect they can guarantee the the fund in in the ways that might be most important to them right so do that work but work i think the first step is really to aggregate projects to make them into larger groups so that they're more they're a size that make more sense for an investment fund and that needs to start also with the energy communities to have that vision but i think quite a few of them are getting there i i think it's also a question of maturity in an ideal world, do you see there being a turnaround in how they're viewed from a profit perspective? It's totally possible because the thing is, is that because there is a 
you you can't say unlimited, but it feels almost unlimited amount of money looking for green investments. The amount of pressure that's building up to find viable green investments. If if a group of communities can crack that code, some of them are already accessing finance and just get enough positive um, case studies out there and models out there. Yes, there's no reason you can't. But the the problem is is that the the cost of money for risky projects is just too high for a group of people who are are sensitive for good reasons for that because it's their money, right? But on the other hand, if you aggregate enough projects and you make those projects big enough and secure enough, you can access money that's less expensive. And so the gap is narrower, right? And that's something that we're not there yet, but it's not totally out of bounds. Definitely not. And that's why I'm talking about aggregating and creating separate entities that bring projects together. On that note, you're based in New York. Uh, you're CEO of Jewel Assets, also based in New York. And CIFA, of course, is a trade association in Europe. I'd like to draw a comparison here between these two energy landscapes. When it comes to project readiness, would you say that one region is setting the example? I think it really depends on what kinds of projects. So the US has a much more developed demand response in industry, for example, but Europe is far, far and away more developed when it comes to the capacity of the grid and the solar and energy trading and and the different things that are being done there. You have a situation where energy efficiency projects are significantly easier to get off the ground in the US. But in Europe, there's a much higher awareness of energy efficiency and people's behavior tends to be more efficient by itself. So so I don't think you can set one up as definitively better than the other. It's, it's more granular and nuanced than that is my personal perspective. What inspired you to get involved in the industry and do these inspirations still ring true for you? I mean, definitely. So my inspiration in the industry, so I was a literature major and I got, I got hired while I was in college to do some work for a a consultancy called VASITT doing research on smart metering and demand response. This was in 2006, 2007, when those were micro things in Europe. And, um, and being a, a literature major, I thought this would be the most boring work on the face of the earth. But but doing it was really interesting for me is that, A, it's an important topic. And saving the planet, I'm not sure what would be more important. But keeping us all healthy in here is sounds like a great starting place as far as priorities go. So that is inspiring by itself. But what for me as a, as a person I was fascinated by the fact that so many of these programs failed because of a cultural dynamic or a financial dynamic or the history of the government or, you know, some oil spill that had happened with the same utilities 15 years ago that was still in people's minds. Like when I was doing the research because we were advising utilities on how to roll out programs for their residents, right? It was so dynamic and there were so many different facets to what made something successful or, or not successful and then how people reacted to it. That To me, that was just fascinating. It's 
it's a technical subject, but it is really, really impacted by culture, finance, history, climate, so many different things. So for, for someone like me, that, that remains very, very interesting. And how do you stay motivated? How do you stay focused on your goals? Um, discipline. <laughs> a lot of self-discipline because uh, it doesn't come naturally. I just have to like force myself to stay focused. You can do all kinds of exciting things. So you just have to decide, all right, I'm going to be successful in this and this. And I'm not, I'm not allowing myself to get too distracted here. What words of advice do you have for anyone looking to enter the industry, especially the youth? I think my my words of advice are is it's more exciting than it looks. You, you know, a lot of times when you're in college, an engine an, an electrical engineering degree, or it's for somebody like me that was in the humanities and came in from the side, there's a lot of growth. There's a huge number of retirees. And um and we really need the new talent because we the energy industry does a lot of damage. It does a lot of good things and it does a huge amount of damage. And it does socioeconomic damage uh, and it does climate damage. So while it's also a source of great opportunity and, and a lot of wonderful things, we definitely need those that new vision and, 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 and energy coming in. So I would definitely encourage people to get involved. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing. Same. Thank you so much for having me and I look forward to seeing you all in Paris. Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast brought to you by Enlit and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time.